History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after-show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, number 67, Religion in the Maldives during the High Middle Ages. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out, or else you will find spoilers ahead. Maldives! Hello, my name is Pete Goddard, and I'm here in the HHE studio with the corner shop to my shipwreck. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Uh, bonjour, ça va? <laughs> you got the reference, excellent. <laughs> I sure did. And of course, we're joined, as ever, by the deliverer of disastrous decisions. It's the judge himself, Mr. Paul Dursley. I would have thought they would be English, because didn't Napoleon call the English a nation of shopkeepers? He certainly did. I'm sure Lavelle would have loved to have been called an Englishman. (laughs) We'll leave that reaction to history. Now, Ryan, I've been on a balmy, beautiful Maldivian beach all week, and as a result, I've forgotten everything about the episode. So could you remind us, perhaps in about 60 seconds? When do you want me to do that? Now! In our last episode of HHE, I took you on a journey to the tropical paradise of the Maldives, where sun-kissed beaches held a secret which had been buried for centuries. With the help of notable visitors to the islands over the past 700 years, we went on a spiritual mission to uncover a mystery that had long puzzled historians. What religion did the ancient Maldivians practice before they converted to Islam? We uncovered evidence and clues hidden in plain sight which helped us pull back the curtain to reveal It was Buddhism which had once reigned supreme. But that's not all, because on this journey of discovery, we also heard stories of sea slugs, shipwrecks and well-shaped women, of record-beating divorce rates and an underwater postal service, which is truly something to write home about. It was religion. It was the Maldives. It was the High Middle Ages. Last week's episode done, summarised nicely, nice one son, now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of thee, he'll take you apart without any care, he's the lovely Paul Dursley, the lovely Paul Dursley. Ah yes, sea slugs and well-shaped women, it's all coming back to me now. Are they very deep? The women? The well-shaped women, are they very deep? (laughs) Oh, shaped like a well. I see what you've done there. That's very good. That's a strong opener from the judge. (laughs) (laughs) Now, while we've got you, let's just leap straight in. My opinion is, of course, irrelevant. It's all about you, Mr. Dursley. How did you feel about the whole affair? I believe you'll be lucky not to get a fatwa slapped on your head. (laughs) (laughs) You think this was provocative then, Paul? Yes, but in a good way. Well, for me, we were attempting to stick it to Al-Qaeda, and I'm prepared to stand by that. I have no issue with Islam as a religion as a whole, uh, but the activities that Al-Qaeda hammering ancient statues to death seems like something that's worth criticising, and I'm prepared to do that. I think that's all against Islam as well. I've known many Islamic people and none of them have hammered a museum piece that I know of, so I think it's a marginal group, isn't it? Yes, I'm I'm glad to hear that they were sunny Muslims in the Maldives. (laughs) Yeah, not shady ones. (laughs) They're of a sunny disposition, clearly. Now, I would like to kick off with a bit of nitpicking ryan oh please do let's just open the doors to some nitpicking shall we that's my role (laughs) it's borderline philosophical nitpicking though because it made me laugh i was happened to be looking at at the flag because i wanted to see it yes Uh, and you described it as a red flag with a green square in the middle well, a green rectangle, but yeah. Yes, but in, in fact, it's described by Wikipedia as a green flag with a red border. Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> that's interesting because when I did my research, I looked at that and I went, that's not how I would describe that. I mean, you look at, have you looked at the flag? I did. Would you say it was a border? It's too thick. It's a too thick a red line around the outside. Let me... Let me go and have a look. Oh, the judge is <laughs> the judging. Ju- <laughs> uh, so, yes, I, a little bit of a philosophical difference of opinion, but I did chuckle to myself and I went, ooh, he said it the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> I did, deliberately so. It's funny that you should pick up on that. So what does the judge think? Is this a red flag with a green centre or is it, in fact, a green flag with a red border? Well, as I'm red, green, colour blind, it's quite difficult to answer that one. <laughs> it's all one colour to him. You um, can't even tell. <laughs> no, I, I, I can see. I can see the difference, and um, I think it would follow the rules of heraldry, which would say that the field is the colour in the middle of the flag, and the border would be around that. Well, there you have it. I knew what you, I knew what you meant anyway. But I also want to bring a, a bit of a mea culpa, an apology to the people of the Maldives, because oh. I also, when I was drifting through looking at things, I came across a version of the Maldivian national anthem that was a little bit faster than the version that we played on the show, and oh, it was really? much better. I really liked it when it was played faster. So I think I may have done them a disservice by saying it was a reasonably ordinary national anthem, because when I, when played a little bit faster, I really enjoyed it. Oh right. Perhaps we could have a little section on national anthems played fast and see what they sound like. Speed them all up, see which sounds most like the Benny Hill music. (laughs) (laughs) So if we're going to be pernickety, can I get ahead of something? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which I think may come up. Yeah. Go ahead. So it crossed my mind during this episode on religion that the judge, in his eternal wisdom, might point out that Buddhism isn't in fact a religion. Oh, I think I already have. Yeah, because we had talked about this in previous episodes, I think in our Bhutan episode, where there is a question mark over whether or not Buddhism is a religion or a philosophy or indeed just a way of life. If you search world religions, you're going to find Buddhism listed in there. And Buddhism can be practiced as a religion, but it's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha wasn't a god. You're not required to have more faith in the Buddha than you do in yourself. They say that his power lies in the teachings. Buddhism is a science of the mind, a way of exploring how we think, feel, and act that leads us to profound truths about who we are. So in that way, Buddhism is a philosophy of life. I challenge the word science, but you are generally, I believe you are generally correct. But others argue that a religion is a philosophy that posits a path towards experiencing ultimate reality and the potential for personal transformation. Let me help you out here, Ryan, because you've claimed it's a religion and I'm going to back you up and I'm going to back you up with the incontrovertible fact that when I did an O-level, which is an exam that no longer exists, that's how long ago (laughs) it was that I was at school, we did five world religions, not four world religions and a way of living to find your way to mindfulness. And that included Buddhism, which I think is an absolute score for you. I mean, if the O-level says it. The O-level says it. What thinks you, Dursley? As as you know, I have no religion, but I generally think the Western or Abrahamic religions are very dogmatic, whereas the Eastern religions or philosophy systems are much more pragmatic. 
But the key question is, are you going to mark down Ryan as a result of this egregious mistake? Let's say it's in the balance. You sit on that, Ryan. We'll go move on to something else <laughs> after this. Now, Ryan. Yes, Peter. One of the things that interested me was you said that the Maldivian women had been married on average three times by the time they were 30, I think yes, it was. Yes, I'm not sure this fact can be true. You said there were, what, 500,000 people in the Maldives? 550,000. 550,000. So halve it for women, 225,000, mm. say. Now take two thirds of that. Here comes the math. <laughs> So we're sort of looking at about 150,000 <laughs> fertile females. Well-shaped, I'll have <laughs> well, Well-shaped fertile females. Is that a <laughs> monthly subscription or something like that? <laughs> so if there are 150,000 ladies and they have been divorced on average three times, I assume that they wouldn't be marrying the same man again and again and again. Ah, actually, I can speak specifically to this because this was part of what I looked up, which is that they do do that. You are allowed to do that. And it's something that happens. But the other thing that in, uh, amazed me in terms of enabling it before the age of 30 is in the 1990s, the average age of the first wedding was 15 oh wow so that's changed today but fairly confident that influenced that statistic but i it, i would still say that, that there aren't enough men in the maldives to supply that so i think it's fair to assume that sometimes some people remarry the same person the there isn't really a clear reason that i could find that answered the question why uh, is divorce so prevalent in the maldives the general feelings seem to be it's very tight society in terms of most people live on Malay Island piled up on top of each other with families in overcrowded conditions so they don't get a lot of time actually getting divorces is very straightforward in the Maldives so that's something that doesn't come with a great deal of cost or effort but again the government is doing some things to try and address that so you can mm -hmm. be fined for not going through the court system but it's very easy to get divorced and there must be a cultural element of it as well but fundamentally nobody can really say for sure this is one specific reason why it's not even particularly related just to the islamic tradition of just saying i divorce you three times because obviously there are many many islamic countries and the second and third highest divorce rates that i could find were kazakhstan and russia oh wow so ibn That's battuta religious tutor yeah ibn battuta religious tutor <laughs> he wrote it's oh, easy to marry in these islands because of the smallness of dowries and the pleasures of society which the women offer but this is the key point he says when the ships put in the crew marry when they intend to leave they divorce their wives so oh, it's wow. essentially a almost an arrangement to enable you to have relations and then you just park it when you're done. So that thing about saying I divorce you three times, right? The other things that I can think of like that is Beetlejuice, which you say three <laughs> times and then he appears. <laughs> and Candyman. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary, yeah. It's magic three, I guess, right? Yeah, three's a sacred number, isn't it? But by and large, I think divorce is different to summoning the horrific ghost of a murdered woman and or man who was beaten to death by bees is it though well, one can exist and one can't so is it the bees <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
All right. So Pete, look, talking about marriages and divorces and stuff, one of the things that I spoke about in the episode is where did the original settlers come from? But one of the things that I wanted to talk about was genetic testing, which obviously hadn't been done in the past, but can now be done. And in 2013, a group of researchers conducted a test on 141 Maldivians to see if there were any genetic links between the Maldives and any other parts of the world. And the results I thought were pretty fascinating. So the data shows that there is a strong genetic connection between the Maldives and mainland West or South Asia. Interestingly, though, the researchers also found a subtle genetic difference between different parts of the Maldives, and the difference didn't seem to be related to how far apart the areas were or what language they spoke. One thing the researchers did notice was that there was less genetic diversity and less gene flow between different atolls, the different islands within the Maldives. And that suggests that each atoll was founded by a separate group of people. They also found evidence that women were less likely to move between the different atolls than men. And that suggests that in the past, it was more common for a husband to move to his wife's community rather than the other way around, which you ah, might think. Yeah, and that is something which is pretty unique to the Maldives. It, does, it's, it, it occurs rarely else in the world where the man will follow the woman back to their community. So these islands are trading with or coming from far away rather than nearby islands. How did they get there? What were they doing? Do we know? Yeah, well, the, the Maldivians are famous for their boats. Uh, the boats that they have today day still look like the Dow's from hundreds of years ago. But talking of which, one guy that we spoke about during the episode that I had to cut out a whole bunch of information about was Thor Heyerdahl. If you remember him, he was one of the archaeologists who in the 1980s goes to the Maldives and discovers a whole bunch of Buddhist relics. But he's more famous for his earlier expeditions and discoveries. For example, Thor is best known for an adventure he undertook in 1947 known as the Contiki Expedition. Basically, Heyerdahl had a theory that South Americans prior to the arrival of Columbus were capable of being able to sail long distance over deep sea rather than sort of following the coasts, which is what conventional theory suggested. Now, he said that they were able to reach islands in the Pacific thousands of miles away by raft. And so in 1947, he and a team decided they were going to put this to the test. They built and they sailed a traditional raft just by using ancient Peruvian and Polynesian seafaring techniques. That was it. No modern technology know nothing. The raft was made from nine balsa wood logs and lashed together with hemp rope and was powered just by a simple sail. Uh, he named the boat Contiki after the two children of the Incan sun god and he set sail and immediately found himself on a journey which was pretty much fraught with danger. There were huge storms which threatened to sort of sweep them off course. The boat itself started to threaten to sink them and they even were attacked by a 20-foot tiger shark Ouch. Uh, which they had to fend off with a harpoon Wow. They had food and water shortages. In fact, so much so that at one moment they had to resort to drinking seawater, which made them all delirious. You should never drink seawater. Even if you are thirsty, yeah, you should never drink it. They must have really needed it. But they persevered and they survived. And after 101 days at sea, 4,300 nautical miles, that's 8,000 kilometers, they finally reached their destination on the island of Roroa in French Polynesia. And Thor and his team established themselves as being the ones that had discovered that ancient cultures could and most likely did travel fast distances over deep sea. But he wasn't done there. In 1970, he and 
and his crew built another reed boat, the Ra, using the same techniques and materials as the ancient Egyptians used. And they sailed it and it sank. So they built another one, the Ra 2, and they sailed that 4,000 nautical miles across the Atlantic from Morocco to the Caribbean in just 57 days. Now, Pete, as you know, having studied the Atlantic, taking a little ancient reed raft across the Atlantic might be fairly terrifying. Yes, that sounds absolutely terrifying. And that's why I'm not... Um, I, is, that's not even archaeology, was it? So is, there a, is there a discipline called recreating ancient things and seeing if they work? <laughs> Well, well re- reconstructive archaeology is a thing. Because uh, I can remember that Ra too. Sadly, not called Ra Ra. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I can, I can remember that because it sort of looked like one of those, do you know those banana boat things that people go mm. on package holidays and ride them? It yeah. looked like one of those. Wow. Side note, Thor was arrested in New York City because he had brought the Kantiki to build on stage and it caused so much noise that uh, the police turned up and arrested him. Wow. It's like archaeology's Lenny Bruce. (laughs) Deep cut (laughs) reference there. Seven vessels you can't build on stage. (laughs) (laughs) Way over my head. So, Ryan, I have another thing that you tempted. You lured me in with your worm of knowledge. This is your man, Roger. Oh, King Roger II. Yeah, well, specifically the Tabula Rogeriana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I just loved loved it when you were doing that because it's so stupid, but you cannot keep a straight face. It has real free Roderick vibes to it, doesn't it? But I was more interested in this gigantic silver map, to be honest with you, this two-metre disc. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? A writer from way back, who's an Islamic writer, said that Roger had silver with a weight of 400,000 drams brought to him. From this, he used only a little more than a third of the silver, and the king let him keep the rest as a reward. So Mm. I guess the message there is if you're making something out of gold and someone gives you a tonne of gold, just use a bit of it. The rest's all yours, no problem. Nice. But that wasn't the thing that really interested me. It's rarely an issue for me, by the way, Pete. <laughs> I mean, it's a great bit of advice, but I'm not sure it's going to ever factor into my life. Your Etsy store might catch on yet. Don't worry. <laughs> so here's a couple of things that I found more interesting. Was One was that Idrisi calculated the Earth as a circumference of 23,000 miles. Incredibly close. Incredibly closely, right? And it was, he knew it was a sphere. So our modern flat Earthers are so wildly out of date that even this guy was well aware that it was a sphere. And he wrote it was stable in space like the yolk of an egg, which I thought was a oh, rather nice. nice image. But the, it had already been proven in Roman times that the Earth was a sphere, wasn't it? So it was a rediscovery of it. Was it Aristothenes in... Alexandria, who used a stick in Alexandria and further down the Nile. And the difference in the angle, he managed to work out what the circumference of the earth was. Fine, if you've got a stick. What about the stickler, say? <laughs> eh? They've got no chance. Uh, the other t- a couple of things I thought were interesting about his maps were, one, the middle of the map was Mecca, as you might expect or might not be surprised by anyway. The other thing was interesting that he had north at the bottom of the map. He'd inverted our traditional version of the map. And uh, the, the final thing is that I guess his original maps, either paper ones and the silver one, 
and are long lost. What we have is some later copies of the paper maps. But a group called the Factum Foundation recreated the silver disc and now there is a new silver two metre wide disc. It goes on tour sometimes. They take it out and uh, parade it around places. But I couldn't find where you could see it today. I think it's generally held in storage somewhere. But next time it's out and about, I'll let you know. Yeah, no, that's great. I'd love to go and see that. It sounds awesome, doesn't it? It looks great. It looks kind of like a moon. Mm. So I'd like to talk a bit more about one of our uh, explorers, or rather, should I say adventurers is probably more appropriate. The Frenchman, Francois Pirard of Laval. Ah, the, he wasn't on the croissant, was he? But he was near it. <laughs> uh, he was on the Corbin. So I ended my little story after him having been arrested by the Maldivian Sultan and then him escaping and getting back to France. And that was where I left the story. But the story continues. So after returning to France, Pirard continues working as a sailor and as a navigator. And in 1612, he joins a trading mission to Brazil, where he spends a year there and he has some pretty fascinating experiences. Well, what was the boat he was on? Was it the Brioche? <laughs> For example, Pirard writes about the customs and traditions of the Topinamba people. Now, this is a tribe that he observes practicing cannibalism. And in one account, he describes how the Topinamba capture their enemies in battle and bring them back to their villages. And once there, the captives are tied to stakes and left to die slowly over several days. After they die, the Topinamba then remove their heads and limbs, roast them over a fire, saying that the Topinamba would sing and dance around the roasting bodies, then they would eat the flesh, which was considered a delicacy, with the tastiest meat being reserved for the most honoured members of the tribe. And I guess that would be the buttocks. I guess so, probably. So then what did he do? Open a shop selling human condiments? (laughs) Yeah, I was (laughs) waiting for that. Uh, (laughs) Interestingly, though, he says that the cannibalism wasn't due to hunger or necessity, but rather it was used as a form of ultimate humiliation, a way of degrading the enemy and demonstrating their own power and dominance over them. But again, it is worth stressing that Pirard has been accused of exaggeration in his writings. Uh, But it is true. I did look it up. There were cannibalistic tribes in Brazil during the 17th century. So it is possible that he certainly did witness something along those lines. So following up on Pirard, I also thought I would follow up on John Stanley Gardiner, Pete's favourite, most interesting man alive. (laughs) (laughs) Slugman! Slugman, yeah. This is the guy who spent five weeks observing sea slugs in the Maldives. (laughs) And, (laughs) if I may pitch in, wrote a thousand-word book about it. (laughs) Slugs of my time. (laughs) So later in life, during an expedition to the Seychelles, John Stanley Gardiner makes a discovery. He finds a new species of sea slug which has this green coloration to it. So considering why it was so green, Gardner hypothesized that the slug might be able to use sunlight to generate energy in the same way as a plant, basically using photosynthesis. Now, this is a wild idea, but later research confirmed that it was true. His hypothesis was right. The slug, which he had called Alicia chlorophyll, 
Neurotica is now recognized as one of the most remarkable species of animal in the world. Essentially, it is a solar-powered sea slug capable of photosynthesis, just like a plant. So what happens is, when it eats algae, it steals the plant's chloroplasts, which the plant uses in photosynthesis, and it incorporates them into its own body's cells. Then instead of obtaining energy from food, it's able to produce energy from sunlight instead. Now, scientists aren't entirely sure exactly how the process works, but it does have the potential to explain the ways in which organisms can adapt and evolve to changing environmental conditions. So who knew sea slugs could be so interesting? That is amazing. So basically, they've just managed to take a whole step out. So you don't have to eat the plants to get the energy from them. You just steal their chlorophyll and get the energy from the chlorophyll. That is a solid step towards some sci-fi tinkering so that we all become green and don't have to eat anymore and we just bask in the sunshine going oh i'm just having lunch well that was what i was thinking solar power man that sounds That's great <laughs> i'm in well done slug man unfortunately in croydon <laughs> most people will be even more lethargic than they are now <laughs> yeah people of england would would really struggle wouldn't we yes that's true. The winter months would be pretty bleak for everybody. Well, they are still, even today, I suppose. Anyway, I thought that was incredible. That is, and I, did, I didn't know that. I shall store that away. Well, Ryan, I thought it was an excellent episode, but I, I think there comes a point, Ryan, where we have to actually face the music. And it's now we've come to the end of the line. It's time to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. I'm ready. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I am. So will the defendant please rise. I have risen. Your Honour, as ever, we shall start proceedings by asking for your verdict on the factual content of the show. Well, you didn't really stick to your time period. You were sort of vicariously using the time period by working out what had actually happened there by what things were said later on. Is that a negative? Probably not. I, th I think that's a good piece of work. So I will give you B+. Yay! It was fact-packed, I have to say, so I'm in full agreement with that. Now, next comes the entertainment value. Did you find yourself entertained, thrilled, spilled, enjoyed, laughing, crying? How did you feel? I'm afraid I can't score this quite so highly because the thought of Pete in a bikini was going around my head. It's the thought of his hairy legs in tights, that's what does me in. <laughs> in the Maldive heat. I mean, come on, don't put that image in my head. Worst husband ever. <laughs> so unsupportive. I did like your sketches on this one. I will give you a C+. And the final factor is, of course, the Dursley factor. It's a bit of a mystery. No one knows what it is, but that X factor that tickles your funny bone or your ribs or whatever needs tickling. What did you think, Paul? I thought this was an interesting episode, and I'm using interesting in the positive sense. So I think I will give Ryan C+. Okay, so right. the categories are in, looking relatively positive. And now it's time, of course, for the final verdict. Ryan, before the judge passes the verdict, you have an opportunity to enter a plea. If you choose to do so, please make your plea now. Yeah, I don't want to make a plea, but I do just want to say that I really enjoyed doing this episode. The Desolator was so kind to me, and uh, there was a tremendous wealth of information and a fascinating mystery at the heart of it. This was as as good as an episode of HHE as I think that, that I could possibly do. All righty. Your Honour, the defendant stands before you. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, I have. In which case, most respectfully, I ask for your ruling. 
Ryan, I think for this episode in the Maldives, I will give you straight B. All right. That's a good Thank grade. You, Judge. Well done, Thanks, Ryan. Judge. Uh, any comment, any speech you'd like to make? Yeah, thanks, Judge. <laughs> All right. Well, on that very positive note, uh, that's our show for this week. If you would like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or just to say hi, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. Uh, One way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation really helps bring us out to a bigger audience, which we would love. Yeah, we sure would. Now, if you are on Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or TikTok, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post one of our little trivia tidbits, news, photos, all that jazz. And of course, we'll be back again soon with the next episode, number 68, which is a pig in a poke in North Korea just the other day, (laughs) which I can tell you is going to be an absolute top class episode. Well, I'm looking forward to that one. (laughs) You should do. But in the meantime, a huge thanks to the judge himself. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to... One fact that you didn't mention was it's in both hemispheres. Oh, I didn't mention that. You're right. That's a good fact. Because it actually just crosses the equator. I quite like Island Nation, so I looked it up and you saw, uh, looking at Marley, it's one of this. Is it, Pete, you'd know this one. Is it an ecumenopolis? Oh, I don't know. Why only Pete? Why are you asking me? <laughs> uh, I, it, I think it's a word that means like the whole island is built up. There is no area of green space apart from, you know, little parks and things. But it just look it, it's so densely packed. It's a, like the whole island is a city. Like that city planet on Star Wars, Ryan. Coruscant, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we've got to say, look it up. I think that's the word. But so, so looking at it, but then you sort of see all of this, and then you notice the biggest open space in the whole of Marley is the airport. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And it looks like it's been built on reclaimed land as well, because it just sort of sticks out of the side of the main island. It looks absolutely amazing. It must be annoying, though, being in the Maldives when it's like north and south of the equator, because you've got like the plumbing must just be oh, a nightmare. Gosh. Some go in some way, some go in the other way. You're baiting him for a bad grade error. I know you're trying to wind me up, (laughs) but you're winding your grade down. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't stop myself.